0: So I attended a medical school where there were no grades and all of the exams were optional except for final exams. So if you wanted to take one of the optional exams you could just always put your name as Marcus Welby or something like that. Even the final exams were anonymous. We were each assigned a number that we had to place at the top of the exam. As long as everyone took the exam and all numbers were accounted for, and everyone passed the exam, the code of which number belonged to which person was never broken. In other words, the professors never knew our individual numbers and never knew who scored five points higher than someone else. Even if we failed a final exam, we had six weeks to turn ourselves in before the dean would be notified and the code would be broken. So you would go up to the professor and say, I was the one that failed this exam. (coughs) The professor would ask, did you not understand the material? If that's the case, let's go have coffee and go over the information again. Or did you not study? In which case, go home and study. Come back next week and take the exam again. At the end of the day, the school wanted us to be good physicians and to at least have a certain bar of knowledge. They weren't so concerned about us being good competitors. As you can imagine, if you take 100 students who've spent the last four years competing with other pre-med students at their undergraduate institutions and you put them all together, there there will be a few students who actually have a problem wrapping their mind around this new system. My friend Ross was one such student, and our other friends sometimes fed his anxiety and fed his need for competition. They would memorize complex molecular formulas that we would never need to know in a million years. And when he walked up to the table in the cafeteria, they would make sure that they were in the middle of discussing whether a particular atom in the formula was nitrogen or carbon. Ross would go into a fit of insecurity, afraid that everyone else in the class knew things that he didn't. Or when a professor would project the composition of a particular protein onto the board, Someone would act like they were copying down the entire sequence and then lean over to Ross and whisper, I can't see. Is the fourth amino acid from the left tyrosine or tryptophan? And Ross would begin to write it all down as fast as he could. Now, it's really not Ross's fault that he couldn't wrap his mind around this new system. Long before beginning medical school, we'd all been well socialized to be competitive, to judge ourselves in comparison to others, to need to place ourselves in some kind of a hierarchy. That's the culture we live in. And not only do we need some sort of hierarchy, we need to believe that we can earn our place within that structure, be it with money, intelligence, family tree, or external appearances. But our reading from Acts blows that idea out of the water. To really see what's going on in the four verses we read from Acts, we have to take a step back and look at the larger context. The tenth chapter of Acts begins with a Roman centurion, a Gentile named Cornelius, who's living in Caesarea. One day he receives a vision in which an angel says to him, Send men to Joppa for a certain Simon, who is called Peter. So as two of Cornelius' slaves are approaching the city of Joppa in search of Peter, the story then cuts to a hungry Peter praying on the roof of a house. And while he's praying, Peter falls into a trance and he also receives a vision. His vision is that of a large sheet that comes down from heaven, full of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds. And a voice says to Peter, "'Get up, Peter. Kill and eat.' To which Peter responds almost a little defensively, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. But the voice comes back with a gentle reproach. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. As Peter tries to figure out what to make of all of this and what is the perfect timing of the Holy Spirit, the men from Cornelius' household knock on the door. Peter ends up journeying to Caesarea with the men and enters the home of the Roman centurion, Cornelius. Already, Peter finds himself in new territory, for in his own words, it is unlawful for a Jew to associate or visit with a Gentile. Peter begins to tell Cornelius and all those gathered at his home all about the good news of Jesus, and it's here that our reading for today finally picks up. Peter doesn't even get to deliver the grand finale of his sermon. While he's in the middle of talking, the Holy Spirit stills his thunder and is poured out on all the Gentiles gathered there. They begin speaking in tongues and praising God. It's a second Pentecost of sorts, the first one being in Jerusalem, this one taking place among the Gentiles. Now I suspect that this might have been a lot for Peter to wrap his mind around in a 24-hour period. He goes from having a strict system of clean, profane, Jew, Gentile, chosen, not chosen, to having all those categories upended. What did it mean for his own identity? An identity that had been formed around being pure, Jewish, and chosen. It hadn't been all that long ago that Peter's own inclusion among the Messiah's inner circle might have seemed to be stretching things a bit. A fisherman, no relation to the priests or scribes, most likely very little education. How quickly Peter becomes the establishment in this new community, only to then find another group knocking at the door. The problem is that we always think we've earned our place at the center, not realizing that in God's economy of grace, the center is everywhere and it's always a gift. The whole Bible is leading us to this earth-shattering understanding. It takes us in ever-widening circles, beginning with Abraham and Sarah, then to their descendants, to a people, to a nation, to the foreigners within their borders, and ultimately to all nations as the Holy Spirit can't be contained in Judea but pushes the walls of election ever further and further out. It seems to be such a simple concept this all-inclusive and freely given love of God. And yet there's nothing that's harder for our minds to grasp. It goes against everything we've been taught, at least subconsciously, and it goes against every way we know to function in the world. Richard Rohr puts it like this, What God does in biblical history and wants to do in our own lives is to lead people beyond the idea of a bilateral contract in which we must earn, deserve, and merit, to an experience of pure unearned grace, a unilateral or new covenant with an infinite love source. This is a huge humiliation for an egocentric or narcissistic personality. Only the central theme of grace is prepared to move people beyond a bad and tired storyline of reward and punishment. As Marcus Borg wrote in meeting Jesus again for the first time, only a personal experience of unearned love or grace can move us into a religion beyond mere requirements, to a religion of actual transformation of consciousness. Very practically, this is experienced as being moved from a God view of scarcity and limitation to a God view of infinite abundance. If this is not an earthquake to your understanding you have not yet had the experience the holy spirit is always trying to move us from the idea that we have to earn deserve and achieve our place with god to the realization that god chooses us before anything we can do believe or conscious or accomplish or become god chooses us before anything we can do believe accomplish or become The Holy Spirit is always trying to remind us that our true identity is not what we name ourselves or what others call us. Our truest identity is simply the beloved. It's not something we control. It's pure gift. In the passage from Acts, Peter hasn't finished preaching. Cornelius' family hasn't even had the chance to say they believe. They haven't even been baptized when the Holy Spirit is poured out on them. In our Gospel reading from John, Jesus tells his followers, you did not choose me, but I chose you. The Holy Spirit always beats us to the punch, always sets our own ego straight, always reminds us that God chooses us before we ever choose God. It's so simple, and yet it's one of the very hardest things to truly comprehend, to live into. So I want to give us a challenge for the coming week. I want to challenge us this week to become a little more aware of how this message of grace has yet to be made real in our own lives. Pay attention to the times and places that you feel compelled to earn love this week, to deserve your worth, to buy in some way your status as a child of God. Pay attention to the times you compare yourselves to others despair of your own imperfection, or feel a smugness in your own accomplishments. And those are really two sides of the very same coin. When you experience that catch of the ego, take some deep breaths and hear the words of Jesus. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Any following of commandments, any loving of our neighbor, it all flows freely out of that bestowed chosenness, it never precedes it precedes it there are no prerequisites to grace there are no prerequisites to grace let that sink in for a while it's enough to shake up our whole world